Hello and welcome to Sensei Podcast. This is Manos Brilakis discussing with leaders in the field of CTO and Complex PCI. Sensei means teacher or master in Japanese. The goal of the Sensei Podcast is to help you learn and improve in CTO and Complex PCI so that you can become the best that you can be and offer your patients the best possible results. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to Sensei Podcast. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Sandro Kalra, who is an interventional cardiologist and uh, cardiac critical care physician at the Peter Monk Cardiac Center in Toronto and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and a great friend uh, and CTO complex operator. Sandro, good morning, and again, thank you so much for participating in Sensei. Good morning, Maus. Thank you so much for allowing me the privilege of being involved with such a great initiative. Sandro, you have done uh, great work in multiple fronts, in multiple continents for that matter. But how did it all start? I always ask people, was it something you knew you wanted to do when you were in high school, medical school, residency, fellowship, or is it something that came organically after? Interesting, yeah. You know, the truth is I've told this story in fellows courses. I call it the 22 minutes that changed my life. Um, I was an, I was an interventional fellow because I always liked procedures and I loved cardiology. It was a relatively straightforward this chamber connects to that chamber type of discipline which fit with my with my level of intellect but i ended up going to a meeting uh, that was called advances in hemodynamics it was one of the older meetings and saw some amazing things presented by some truly gifted and leading operators you'll know many of them of course dimitri being one and um, i followed him to the bathroom because i was so mesmerized with what was presented because it it resonated with me. It was the idea of taking care of really sick people and making a big difference in their lives. That's what I wanted for medicine when I started. And uh, and we had a conversation uh, that led to another conversation and a lunch line that led to an impromptu discussion with Ajay Kirtane, Dimitri Karpaliotis, Marty Leon, Greg Stone, all at the same table, all at the same time about this whole concept of a, a chip fellowship. And uh, I got on the bus one day, several months later, uh, having sent them my CV and having made it clear that I was really interested. And I got an email from Dimitri that said, we're in the final stages of finalizing our first chip fellow. Are you interested? And I said, yeah, obviously. And over the next 22 minutes, which was the length of the ride from my home to the hospital where I was doing my first year of international training, we went back and forth. And when I left the streetcar, the last email said, great. I'll call you at 6 p.m. to finalize. And that's where this all began. It was the 22 minutes that changed my life. Well, that's a pretty dramatic uh, <laughs> introduction, I think. For, for people today, maybe a little less, uh, um, you know, less challenging and a little less daunting, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, now there are fellowships, obviously, and yeah. things have been much more standardized. So you were one of the early, um, probably one of the first, actually, if not the first, uh, people who got into this formal CTO training. And uh, how useful did you find this? <clears throat> you know, since you know before you, most people were just training, getting trained on the job. Uh, so how how useful was the CTO training or? I training? think it was. I mean, it forms the backbone of how I do everything in my day to day practice. I think the most important part about complex PCI training for me was the initial stages of cognitive development, where we were taught how to think about complex patients and complex cases. The technical aspects came with time and with volume. And I think the 
the the dovetailing of the early cognitive foundations with the then filling in of the technical details really became critical to being good at this job. Um, it gave birth to the desire to want to contribute to the field. It gave birth to the desire to want to teach. It gave birth to the desire to engage in research and these kinds of things. And so I think it, you know, the importance of it can't be overstated. It, it truly took my life into a direction that I never thought I would be able to take and the never been happier at work. And then how have things changed over time? What do you do now for preparing for these complex cases, for doing these cases? Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. You know, they ask you, how do you know what a chip case is? And I feel like for me, a chip case or a complex PCI case is the case that I think about the day before, right? The one that I'm, you know, wondering about or thinking about when I'm getting ready for bed the night before. Um, I'm thorough, systematic, and detailed. That's my approach to things because I need that level of structure. That's part of the reason why CHIP Fellowship training was so useful to me, because it was systematic and it was structured, whereas the little bits and pieces training on the job is a little bit less structured, a little bit more self-directed. And so I apply that same structure to planning for my cases. I have a sort of CHIP case checklist that, you know, you've seen in many of the slides that, you know, that I've presented at meetings where, you know, pilots fly planes by checklists, right? I feel like that works for me. So I, I go through that checklist, including indications and, um, and the reason for the procedure and patient's fitness and the medical comorbidities uh, early on with a chart review, usually the day before the case. Um, but then I'm pretty systematic about planning the technical details as well so that I have a plan A, B, C, and D when we go in. That's my, my approach. So very systematic, very thorough. Um, do you get anxious and nervous about these cases that are complex these days? Yeah, I think I think anxiety is arguably maybe not a, a good thing because it takes your ability to focus away. But but vigilant and a little bit nervous, I think, is a good thing because it forces you to focus on all of the details of these very complex, multi-layered cases. And I feel that before every one of these cases. I, I worry the day I stop feeling it because it means that I'm getting complacent. You know, we're all a little bit different, right? And, and I recognize that feeling in me when I get it as I'm preparing or as I'm approaching a case as a respect for the case that's in front. That I always want to have. And then when things don't go as you plan, for whatever reason, the case doesn't work or even worse, you get a complication, how do you handle these cases these days? Yeah, those are, those are hard things, aren't they? Um, I think the, the reality, the truth of what we do is the only way you don't get complications and you don't get bad days is you don't do cases, right? But we do what we do because we love to do it and because we want to take care of people. So it's part and parcel. So I struggled with this early to try to figure out a systematic way to learn from these experiences because there's so much going on, right? You, you have the elevator thoughts of, oh my God, I'm an assassin or I should never be doing this work or why did I take this case on or what are they going to think of me? And, um, and then you have the patient-focused thoughts of, oh, my God, what have I done? How am I going to speak to this family? They're going to be so upset. And then you have the team thoughts of, how do I fix this? How am I going to explain this to the team? They're going to ask questions. How, how do I work through this? And I realized I needed a systematic way of doing this. And so I was sitting after one of these days one day going, you know, I feel like I'm sitting under a tree thinking, you know, walking through a garden, smelling the flowers. And I came up with something called the petals approach which is a systematic approach to analyze complications. Um, P is the predictability of a complication, right? So 
what the big data tell us. You know, calcified vessels are prone to perforations, prone to stent loss, that kind of thing. E is the event before the event that caused the complication, right? So not why did I have a perforation, but why did I not IVIS to judge the size and choose the right balloon, right? Was there a time pressure? Was the IVIS catheter broken? Did we not have it in stock? Is there something that can be done from a programmatic perspective? T is the treatment that was employed. That's easy. A is the advice for the next case. So this is what I would do differently the next time I do this case so that I can avoid this complication on a technical and planning level. L is the life lesson, right? So how am I going to change me to be able to manage this scenario better, right? Do I, if I start getting frustrated or concerned or, you know, confused, I'm going to put everything down and step back from the table, which is my way because it forces me to put down everything in our hands when we're in tough situations that can become a weapon. And then S is the support and safety of peer review. I insist on reviewing these cases within our program, mine and everybody else's, because it sets a, an environment of safety and it sets an environment of acceptance of one another, where we're committed to learning from one, one another. We recognize that sometimes things go wrong and we're, we're constantly trying to focus on how do we get our patient care delivered better. Um, that, that's my approach. Again, it's a very systematic sort of structured approach because that's what I need to learn. Others can handle many of these things all at the same time and manage them in their mental map. It's just that's not what I do. Beautiful. I mean, I love the, I love the acronym and that's a great way to think about uh, things that how can help inform the future. But are there any uh, specific cases that stay with you that have really taught you a lot that uh, change the way you practice and the way you act? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the one that taught me the most was one of the cases from which this approach was born. Right? It was a, a lady who uh, I remember from my last job, I was in Philadelphia, where she had, uh, uh, she's about 50, mid-50s. She had pheochromocytoma in the background. She had uh, ischemia along her anterior wall. She had LV dysfunction. The surgeons did not want to do her surgery because she had a proximal LVDCTO and the collaterals were not great. So we, after carefully considering the whole scenario, decided that we would offer her a procedure. She was at the, This was before we knew the, all of the benefits here were symptom-based benefits for CTO-PCI. So we at this time thought that you know, it was probably right to revascularize a a wall that was ischemic when the wall was not functioning all that well. And this lady, she, she probably would have had symptoms if she moved around more, but she was quite obese. Um, anyway, we we were up retrograde and we were very close to recanalizing the proximal LED, which was a very, very ambiguous proximal cap. And I got frustrated waiting for something. And so I figured, well, let's do something with my time. And I did a retrograde Carlino at the level of the proximal LED. I did injected contrast retrograde through the microcatheter to loosen the proximal cap to facilitate wire access into the left main. And what that ended up doing was actually hydraulically dissecting the left main off. And thankfully, I had a safety wire down, but her hemodynamics, as you might imagine, tanked. I had anesthesia in the room, right? I had the support necessary to be able to manage some of the hemodynamics because I anticipated problems in the case, given her unique biologic makeup. But I did obviously didn't anticipate all of them. And this error in judgment, I owned. I completely owned. So thankfully, we bailed this out quickly and managed to get a pretty reasonable result at the end of it. But there was a period there where we were in big trouble. And that case forced me to look at the aspects of the case that I just talked about in that acronym, which was how do I plan and figure this out? Um, 
And then after a complication occurred, what did I miss? What is the, what was the problem with my decision-making? What I realized was that was one of those ones where the L in pedals, the life lesson learned was probably the most important, right? Where I, I learned to, to step back if I'm, you know, I'm feeling fatigued for a minute uh, and stick with the plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D that I've laid out as opposed to changing these things. When I'm thinking on the fly, I recognize that I'm thinking on the fly and just slow my decisions down a little bit so that everything is done very carefully and considered. That taught, that case taught me a lot. It's years old now, but it obviously stays with me because it changed who I am. Beautiful. And I know that uh, you know you were a key contributor to um, the paper about the algorithms, within the algorithms and the uh, debate about think before acting or act before thinking. So what's your stance on that? I know people yeah. uh, always have some hard time saying, you know, act before thinking. Whoa. Yeah. So what, what is your you take? You know, this, this was one of those act before thinking type of cases, right? The basic approach is, do you have time to think? If the answer is yes, think. It's always safe to do that. But if you don't have time to think, if your patient's crashing in front of you, then as You know, just like when you run a code, as physicians, we have certain ingrained protocols, things that are built in us from day one, right? If the heart stopped, you need to do CPR because that body's not going to live if it's got no perfusion. Similarly to us as interventionalists, right? When we have a sudden crash in hemodynamics and the patient's tanking, we go through a list of things that we have to understand. Where's my guide? Is it air? Is it thrombus? Have I dissected something? Take a picture, figure out whether or not there's a perforation, etc., etc., etc. And so in those scenarios where you have no time to think, I think we automatically protocolize our approach where it becomes get proximal and distal control as fast as possible. Whatever the problem is, temporize it for a minute so that you buy yourself time to think. Versus if you have a problem... Like, for example, a perforation, right? You can temporize that very quickly by putting a balloon up, and then you've got lots of time to think, right? And then you can use that time to, to create a, a more careful approach to solving the problem, whereas maybe a more quickly derived or rash approach might result in losses that don't need to be losses, right? So, so I, my perspective on it is if you have the time to think, always take it. But if you don't have the time to think, then activate the ingrained protocols that we have as part of our training, which are patients first, safety first, beauty or you know, perfection second. And then I know that you're obviously very systematic. I love the graphs behind on your wall that shows that, you know, try to analyze everything and put it into rubrics. How um, important has that been, this um, algorithm or this protocol or this systematic approach? How has that been? And do you still do it now these days? Or now you've mastered these topics and you can think more freely? Yeah, that's an interesting question, isn't it? So I think at the, at the beginning of my training, um, I was inducted into the idea of algorithmic thinking um, because it is a reproducible and systematic way of teaching. Right? So I, I learned that way because it set up structures in my head that I could follow. But I think as anyone becomes more and more experienced, they start to see the limitations within the algorithms, you know, the holes, if you will, and in that process, recognize places where, where we can all get a little bit better and think a little bit more freely. So now as I've develop more expertise in the area. I try to take the algorithm and develop my own algorithms within my algorithms so that that um, 
the more common areas that I get stuck that don't necessarily get answered by the larger published ones, I have a rapid, reproducible, and safe approach to dealing with. And I do things the same way every time because I know that either that way is efficient and is safe for me or I've made a mistake doing it a different way. And this way I know works. And how often do you revise those algorithms? Is that something you do once a month, once a year? How, how often do you actually change? And yeah, to, to be honest, I, I, I'm always trying to do that. Right? I think we are all, all always trying to do that as a, a part and parcel with the complex PCI space. No two cases are the same. Every patient's more, more complex than the next. And you can make even the most simple of interventions intellectually complex. So, so I, I'm constantly focused on whenever a case is done, how would I have done that differently or better? Sometimes you walk away saying, that was a win, right? It looked really good. Um, but inevitably, you know, and now like I have a complex PCI, I have two complex PCI fellows, right? So it helps me being able to teach it to force myself to be systematic about it. And what, you know, what, what I've done with their training is started them on algorithms, but then we actually work through the debrief of every case together. And one of the pieces of the post PCI checklist that we follow is how do we do this better next time? And that's where we end up revising our algorithms a little bit. Um, you know, even if it's something small, like next time, we're not going to wait this long before moving on to the next step, right? Uh, so the answer to your question, I guess, the long-winded answer is I, I'm revising it constantly. I think we we all are, intellectually, maybe on paper a little bit less commonly. And then um, when it comes to learning, what has been the hardest thing for you to learn, and what is the hardest thing for you to teach now your fellows? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Um, I think the Dunning-Kruger effect is very important, right? This was a, this was a, I think this is a pathway that we all take, right? It's, you can't avoid it, right? It's human nature. But the Dunning-Kruger effect describes that, you know, when you first come out, your perceived skill set is much higher than your actual skill set. Then you, you know, as you do some crazy things, you, your perceived skill set drops while your actual skill set actually rises, right? You enter this, quote, valley of despair, and then eventually you enter the slope of enlightenment where you realize that bad things happen and you do your best and you constantly try to get better. And I think the, the toughest thing to learn is how to shorten this, the, how to, how to reduce the peak of the, of Mount Stupid, that first little peak where you have high perceived skill set and low actual, and how to shorten the value of despair so that you can go as quickly as possible to the slope of enlightenment, right? It's the managing the people around you in these complex cases, right? It's managing the skill sets required and the various cognitive skill sets required. You know, um, I, I wish that uh, there was a quick and easy way of learning how to run a room when doing uh, one of these really complex cases or when worse, when you're having a complication. And the truth is there isn't. It only comes from doing it and making your mistakes and being honest with yourself and your colleagues and learning and then getting better the next time, being conscious about it and then building structures behind you to try to do that, right? Checklists on the wall, the involvement of anesthesia in your ultra high risk cases, the pre-procedural brief that you do with your team, these kinds of things. Those are the lessons that I wish I learned earlier, but that over time I now have and I try to teach the fellows early on because they see it modeled. Sure. And then on the technical part, 
Is it the microcaster? Is the wiring? Is the planning? What has been the part that you found the hardest time before and uh, I think, in the teaching? I think for me, um, the 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 toughest part has been learning how to change technical strategies quickly, right? Because it's very easy for us to get um, tunnel vision in our planning. For example, you're working with a particular wire your understanding of the tissue based on how it's feeling in your hands and what you've done when you've looked at the angiograms and planned means that this should work, but it's not working. And so you continuously try to do the same thing over and over using tiny, tiny variations. And before you know it, you know, an hour and a half has elapsed on the clock and the team is starting to get glazed over on their eyes, right? So I think the technical aspect is learning when a particular strategy is not working and when you need to change it. You know, the, the movement of a microcatheter, the, you know, the way to do large bore access, the hemodynamics of complex PCI mechanical support, the wire construction, physics, how they feel, these are all actually technical things. The technical aspects of the procedure came, they were, very, they were initially slow going, and then suddenly my brain clicked, and then everything came very easy. It was more learning how to take the technical skills and put them together in just the right way to get just the right result. Um, and, and that's when I do presentations in these things, I try to concentrate on those aspects where we talk about either how you thought through a technical problem and created a technical solution, that's still thinking, or how you thought through a, a technical failure and turned your procedure into a success. That those, all of those things are still, though, taking the technical aspects of what we do, which I firmly believe are teachable to just about anybody, and combining them using the cognitive aspects of what we do to get the result that we want to achieve. Perfect. And then, are you a fan of the method, see one, teach one, do one, teach one? How, 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 do you, how did you learn? Obviously, you had some great teachers, Dimitri, Carvalhoti, some great people, but how did you actually learn? What was your learning style? Is it mainly observing, mainly doing, both? I think, I think it has to be both, right? So it depends on sort of, again, what kind of person you are. If you're the type that can self-direct and learn and, and technical things come quickly to you off the bat, you can conceptualize technical and make it cognitive. You know, you can figure out how a wire is working and use that to understand what a tissue feels like. That's, that's a particular type of skill set. For me, I actually, for the first several months of my complex PCI training, didn't I did a bunch of technical stuff because I'd come in with, you know, seven eight hundred PCIs under my belt. But but I wasn't doing the high end technical stuff right away, because Dimitri and Ajay and you know and my many mentors at Columbia, you know, watching people such as yourself who taught me as well, right? The, I learned that that you have to really carefully analyze the case before you start designing a technical strategy. So I was. I was, I was second operator for a little while, and it was it was about developing hygiene on the table. When do you wipe the wires, and how do you wipe them, and how do you keep things straight, and how do you prep and anticipate the next need? You know, are you looking for complications constantly on the screen? I remember asking Dimitri how I was doing after the first couple of months. He said, "You're doing very well, but what strikes me most is that your eyes are very good." You see this. You see things that are going on. You anticipate what could go wrong or what is coming. And that's when I realized that I had the cognitive structure necessary to now start integrating the technical. And that's when I started doing more. And 
by constantly then seeing, doing, seeing, doing together is is how I develop the skill set that I have. And that I think most of us have in that regard. Perfect. So iterative process yeah. incorporating the both. And how about when you teach your fellows now? How do you customize it, if you will? How do you get the message to them? Because everyone is different, yeah. right? So how do you find the learning style and how important that is? You know, I think as uh, I'm a I'm a, an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, and, and my particular job description is as a clinician teacher. So my specific charge is teaching, and um, and what I've learned about learners is learners are all different and they come in a bunch of different flavors, right? There are the ones that, that initially learn very slow and then they suddenly jump. There are the linear learners and then there are the ones that go very fast but then plateau early. And you have to figure out which learner you're dealing with and then when they start to hit their inflection point, you have to figure out why. Because then you customize your teaching for them. So my current chip fellow is a very thoughtful guy right, is, is very, very smart and does things similarly to where, similarly to the way I did them, where he watched and learned and cognitively understood. And, and I could see that that came very quickly to him. So I waited till he had that structure in place. And then I started teaching him tiny technical details to build uh, safety into every move he makes. So, so now he's quite independent, but he does things a very specific way. Right, which is cognitively analyze the case and then build in the technical strategies, much like I do them. My other fellow is technically gifted. You know, with 150 PCIs under his belt, he wired his first septum, and you know, and did so like a pro. So uh, I realized he knew how to do that, but then was having troubles working through some of the cognitive aspects of tissue handling and and what uh, a lesion, what kind of techniques a lesion would need. To cross right, and so in those scenarios, I I can trust that he's going to be able to execute what I tell him to do. So instead, I'll tell him, "Give me your approach to this problem. What are you trying to accomplish?" Okay, and and we always start with that question: What are you trying to accomplish? Okay, what are the variables of the equation that you need to work through? What's the tissue like? What's the vessel like? What's the what's the impediment that you're facing? Now figure out a strategy where you're going to work through them. Walk through it with me, and then let's execute it. So very different ways of teaching. But that's my job as a teacher, right? To try to mold the skill set into uh, the hands or the particular shape of, of the bag that the learner will carry. And then are there things that you look specifically before you recruit those fellows? Is it yeah. the attitude, the skills? Yeah. How do you select them in yeah, the first place? Yeah, bit? that's a great question as well. So um, I, you know, being one of the early chip guys at, at Columbia years ago, I remember asking Dimitri this question in his office. These are these few things, as you can tell, things that, you know, stay with you, right, as a, as a trainee, which, which always sits with me every day. You know, everything you do with your trainees, they'll remember, so be good to them. Um, I asked him, why me? You know, why, why me, right? You must have had so many people that were interested in this spot. I didn't think there was anything special about me. Why me? Why did you decide to give all of this to me? He said, because you wanted it more than everybody else. And I think that's probably the most important thing about complex PCI and complex PCI education. We're dealing with really sick patients. They have lots of challenging stuff going on. This is not about the twistiness of the epicardial collateral that you may or may not want to wire. It's about how do you deal with the 
compressed left mane and you know and bleeding diathesis and you know constantly reduced stent size right like this is this is a much more complex area than just the technical aspects of how to cross a lesion and that takes someone who's willing to spend the time early get to know the patient try to make the right call have the the real informed consent discussion with the patient because they care about them they 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 love what they do and they they love the privilege and the trust that's placed within them to be able to provide the care that we do. Um, because I feel like once once that's in place, right, once the, your heart's in the right place, then the skill sets quickly layer because you're open to learn, right? For those people who, who maybe are trying to find a cool job where there's going to be uh, need, this is not for you, right? You're, 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 you're not necessarily the going to enjoy being at the bedside at two o'clock in the morning because you're worried about how your technical aspects of your case went. Um, you know, you're, you need to have that level of commitment to really make a go of this. And I think many of us are designed that way. Some of us are not. They're both different types of people. Both of them are valuable. Both of them, both groups or many groups are important. Um, but the complex PCI skill set, I think it's incumbent to to want it really bad in order to be good at it because you've got to be there and be available all the time. Wonderful. And then, uh, Sandro, how do you keep in shape to be able to do all this? Uh, um, yeah. Do you do something specific, all these things you have to do? Yeah, no, that's that's a, that's an important piece. I think we all sort of get sucked into work every so often and forget to take care of ourselves. Um <clears throat> Uh, I, I like everybody else in the early years did that, right? Where, where I was, I was working constantly and it was an exercise of jumping from one case to another and then doing paperwork after hours. That's fine at the beginning when you're trying to accumulate volume and work out the kinks, right? Um, I think it's, it's an honest part of the process, but eventually you need to build in sustainability, something that you know is going to continue to work over time. And for me, um, Taking a little bit of time for exercise, either in the morning or at night, um, and then taking time with you know my wife and my kids who bring me a lot of joy. Like that, those that's how I recharge. And so I don't I don't plan them into my schedule. I plan my schedule around around those things. And that I think is what you have to force yourself to do. Otherwise, it's very easy to put the softer but most important things, arguably, in life aside for this particular specialty, which will demand of you many things every day. And do you have any uh, favorite book or movie? Uh, my favorite my favorite movie is Braveheart. It was a, um, a movie with Mel Gibson that uh, talked about the story of William Wallace. I found it very powerful, very moving, and kind of resonated with the idea of, you know, the personality that I carry, which is, you know, you've got to want it bad. And when you do, you'll do what's necessary to get it done. And, and how about the book? You know, the, the, the best book I've read recently um, was called, a, believe it or not, was called The COVID Tale, which is a book dri- uh, written by a friend of mine um, on the other side of the world. He's an interventional cardiologist who, who described his experience going through COVID, going from the physician side of the bed to the patient's side, sometimes terrified of what was going to happen. 
you know, it's, 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 I try not to read medicine recreationally. He gave me this book because he said, I want you to read it because when he was, I, it's one of the hats I wear is in critical care. So, so when I was, when he was sick, I was helping to manage him remotely, but it was a, a moving tale because I learned a lot about him as a person and how we all have, um, fears that we have to manage every day. These people who seem completely well put together in their day-to-day lives. We all have our, our challenges that, that we manage to keep out of the public eye. And it, it helped me be a little bit more compassionate to myself and recognize that maybe some of the things that we all struggle with, including myself, some of the things I struggle with, yeah, you know, other people struggle with too. And it's okay to have those things. It's always a work in progress. And Sandro, you've done many things. What are you most proud of? My kids. The, the, I'm, I'm most proud of, I guess in, you can divide that out, can't you? So in my personal life, I think I'm most proud of my family because I'm, I'm a proud husband and dad to two lovely children and they're good people, right? They think about others first and that took time to train, right? They're young, but we're trying to train them that way. And, uh, and I think that they're going to grow up to be great people and, and that's my biggest responsibility. And on the professional end, um, you know, pride's a funny question i think part of the part of what we train ourselves to do in complex pci is be thankful and happy for the impact that we've had but try not to let it go to your head because you're only as good as your last screw up um but i I take pride in helping to grow the complex pci space as a teacher um, I was so, so fortunate, so lucky to have been one of the early ones that was inducted into formal training. Um, and that's a, you know, that represented a tremendous leap of faith on the people that chose to trust me with that training. And so I consider it a very deep responsibility to curate that and to represent it well and to be a decent human being around it and teach it the same way. Um, and I'm, I feel like I've, I've been able to do that well. You know, I, I go to Southeast Asia, other parts of the world fairly frequently and, and work to improve access to complex PCI care. Sometimes working in cath labs with giant holes in the ground where the hole is covered with the, the table so that you don't fall in it, but you still have a patient in front of you that has a horrible left main that needs to be fixed. That creating that, that that access to care, teaching those skill sets so that those patients have access to care, that that gives me pride because it's done with the same thing in mind that I was taught, which is just do what's right. The rest will take care of itself. Perfect. And then what are you most excited about now in the future? I think the, the field that we are in professionally is it's such a multifaceted field like anything else we started with a concept and it's now starting to bear out into more and more detail in each of its sub facets right so imaging is exploding we've gone from low fidelity ibis catheters and an early oct device to now high frequency oct and high definition ibis and soon ibis oct catheters in the same catheter right which are then being combined now with really interesting CTO devices and, you know, and being combined with um, 
you know, additional AI algorithms to be able to help with analysis, right? So, so I'm, I'm most excited about actually where the technology in this field is going, because I think it's going to make a, a massive splash. And we will continue to get better at figuring out who the patients are that are going to benefit from this therapy. And, uh, and we're very likely then, I think, to, to really move the needle within our space. Perfect. And then if you had to finish with some advice for the people that are learning or training. I think um, the advice I would give to people coming into the complex PCI space is keep your mind open. Right? Keep your mind open and be willing to accept that you don't know very much, right? but that every case is a learning experience. Every piece of, uh, of care that you provide is going to teach you something good or bad. Um, and pick your field carefully, right? Do what you love. Like, honestly, do what you love because you're going to do it for your whole life. I remember as a fellow, um, and it's interesting because I'm, I'm um, part of the residency training program for cardiology here too as a wellness rep. The, the, I remember as a fellow, I was always worried about my job. I was like, I'm going to get through all this training and then what? Like, I, I eventually want to have a job. And I was, I was focused on trying to get myself molded into an employable position. That didn't work. It was a train wreck. I neither did intervention particularly well, nor was I particularly effective in creating relationships. So, you know, as I said, those 22 minutes changed my life because I happened to... You know, I always like taking care of sick people, but I happened to find an area of intervention that allowed me to do exactly that every day. And because it was what I loved, I put my mind to it automatically. It didn't, it wasn't hard for me to want to be there. That came through in everything that I did. And I think as a result of that, I, I was offered the opportunities that I was. So my advice to anybody going into this space or whatever job they have or they're, they're looking at is just do what you love because inherently you will excel. And people want to work with good people. They want to work with people that are happy doing their jobs. They want to work with people that can handle difficult scenarios. And when you're doing something that you feel like you have control over and that you enjoy, understand and enjoy, all of those things just come through automatically. Well, thanks again. Well, thanks again. so much, Sandro. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it, and congratulations for everything you've done. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be involved with such a great initiative. Sorry about the audio difficulties in the middle there, and uh, and uh, I uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you for listening to the Sensei Podcast.